uh, reading. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it, laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word together. I ask that now, as we focus on your word, that you would allow us to give you our full attention that the struggles that maybe we came in with would now um, dissipate so that we can see you, or Lord, that your word would speak to those things. I ask, Lord, that you'd use me as your messenger to communicate your truth, Lord, in, 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 in accuracy, but Lord, also in a way that will help us consider our relationship with you, that we would see you in your glory. We would see your purposes laid out before us and be, Lord, just truly comforted and um, confident that you are at work in us. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> this past October, as many of you know, my wife and I had the privilege of going to England, and uh, one of the places that we visited um, was the Tower of London. Anyone been to the Tower of London? Okay. And one of the, the, the things about the Tower of London, it used to be where the royalty lived, um, but it became the abode for those who had committed treason, and they were kept in the dungeons there, and often they were executed there. It was kind of like the, um, the elite place to be executed, right? Not the common place, but the elite place. If you're going to be executed, you might as well be executed in the elite place, right? The Tower of London. There's some prestige for you. Um, but one of the things about the Tower of London is it is also the location of the crown jewels, and um, if you've not seen the crown jewels, they're pretty amazing. And you, you, walk, you wait in this long line. Um, we happened to wait only, I think, an hour. Um, but that day, literally, it was wall-to-wall -wall people. And after us, the line had doubled in length. And because this is such a popular attraction. And you go in, you literally go into a vault. And in that vault, they have all these different pieces of... Uh, 
of, of these different kings and queens. Um, you see scepters, you see crowns, um, you see some things that go all the way back to the 12th century. Um, and what's interesting in the story is that when Oliver Cromwell defeated Charles I, he took all of that, all that gold, all of the jewels, he took the, the gold and he went to the mint, not he himself, but he had it sent there, and it was all melted down and the jewels were taken out. So there's, a, there's this big chunk of England's history as far as the crown jewels are concerned that is gone because it was melted down and it was used to help the people. Um, but then when the monarchy was reestablished under Charles II, um, he began this huge pomp and circumstance kind of coronation and developed all this regalia just like um, Charles I. And so as you go in there, you see Charles II's crown. You see, um, uh, for me, one of the interesting one was uh, Queen Victoria's crown. Remember, it's a really small one. Um, and then, of course, uh, Queen Elizabeth, um, whom I actually, I, I actually have a lot of uh, fondness for, just her character and the way she's handled herself. Um, yet, it's just amazing when you get face to face with the, 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 the beauty of these things and the jewels that are there. When people think about a coronation of a queen or a king, they typically land in the United Kingdom. That's usually where they go because they don't do things small there, right? I mean, it's massive, it's huge, it's involved, it's a national thing, and lots of money is poured into it. Now, you may like that or not like that, but that's what happens there. Now, that is a coronation that has taken place in, might want to say, our era. Today, as we come to 1 Samuel, we're going to be coming to a coronation of Israel's first king. Now, one of the things that we need to realize here, though, is this is a coronation that's a little different than the coronations that we've talked about so far that, that took place in England. And, and one of the reasons it's a, a little different, and one of the reasons that's actually a coronation to remember, is because it's a coronation that sneaks up on the people. They're not aware that this is actually a coronation that's taking place. Now, we, we have the privilege of having that information as we read the story. It's also a coronation that will have some unusual twists and turns in it. It's also a coronation that, that has some awkward moments in it. It's also a coronation that takes place because of God's sovereign mercy. Um, I just want you to think through with me. We have, we have seen, well just think through it with me on, the, on these lines. If, if someone is getting married, there are some things you don't want to hear at a wedding, right? You know, before I pronounce you husband and wife, does anyone have any reason why these people shouldn't be married together, right? You are not wanting anyone to say anything at that moment. That is an awkward moment. Uh, at a funeral, there are some things that you just should not say. Here, however, we have what I'm calling some awkward moments um, and some things you definitely do not want to hear at a coronation that flow right out of this text. All right, here's the first one. This is the coronation, but I want you to know you have rejected God. It's not what you want to hear at a coronation. Another one you don't want to hear at a coronation is this. Um, we're having trouble locating the king. 
That's not a good thing at a coronation. You need the king to be present, right? And another thing you don't want to hear at a coronation is this. Um, this king will be useless. Now, these, these all flow out of this passage, and we're going to see this, this, there's some strange things that are happening here, but God is at work through it all, and there is rhyme and reason to this. Now, we've seen the theme of God's mercy in the sinful behavior of God's children before. We, we've, we've already recognized that God works mercifully through his children and their disobedience to bring about his sovereign purposes. We saw that with the Ark of the Covenant, and now we're going to see it again. I just re- want to remind you of what we started out with this morning and that is Psalm 136, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love, or mercy, endures forever. So the question for us this morning, how we're going to kind of approach this passage, is to ask this question. What happens at Mizpah on this day? What happens at Mizpah on this day? Look at verse 17. Now Samuel called the people to, together to the Lord at Mizpah. Now if you've been reading in 1 Samuel, if you remember uh, in this story, there are some things that have already happened at Mizpah. Mizpah was the place where God, through Samuel, had told the people of Israel to gather to repent um, of the worship of foreign gods and the wandering of their hearts from the Lord. So when he gathered them to Mizpah, he confronted them with their sin. They repented, and there was this wonderful revival, and the people were turned back to the Lord. That was Mizpah. Mizpah was also one of the stopping points of Samuel's itinerant ministry after that time of revival. It was the place where he would judge the people, and what that meant was that he would proclaim God's truth to the people, and he would give counsel as God's representative, as God's leader, to the people in those various different locations. So Mizpah was a place the people knew um, would be where they would hear from God. The word of God would come at Mizpah. It would be where they would be confronted with their sin, where God would judge his people. So as you can imagine, the people were likely wondering, what do we do to be summoned to Mizpah? Just read that verse again. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. Uh Uh-oh. What's going on here? How is God going to judge us today? Now, one of the advantages, that, like I said before, that you and I have as we read the story is that we are aware of, w- of what God is about to do. But the only persons that know that Saul has already been anointed as Israel's deliverer, which would be the first part of chapter 10, are God, Samuel, and Saul. There's this secret that has not yet been revealed So we need to keep that in mind as we see these events unfold in these verses. Saul's secret selection is now going to become public revelation. But at the moment, it is still a secret, okay? So here's how we're going to approach it. First of all, I want want us to see this first section where we're looking at the rejection of the king. It begins in verse 18. 
And he said to the people of Israel, this is Samuel speaking for God to the people. And Samuel said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now, when a prophet says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, and the prophet says that at Mizpah, you start shaking your boots a little bit. Everything about the next few verses screams, God is going to judge us for something that we have done. In fact, this is the very formula of the judgment of God that we find laid out for us in the Old Testament. A statement about God's faithfulness, a statement of Israel's wickedness, a revealing of the culprit, if there was an individual, and then a declaration of judgment. Okay? So it is understandable that the people are ready for some bad news, and to be sure, it was coming. So, let's think then, what does God actually say? First of all, he reminds the people of his goodness to Israel. God's saying to Israel, listen, look at all the things that I have done for you. Notice what he says, I brought you up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. That is no small statement. Let's just review for a minute how God has been good to Israel. Remember Egypt and how they were in bondage to the Egyptians. They were slaves there. Remember how through the hand of Moses, God delivered them from the oppression of the Egyptians. Remember the bloody water and the frogs and the gnats and the flies and the dead cattle and the, the boils and the hail, the locusts and the darkness, the death of the firstborn. Remember being struck, or being stuck, I should say, between this, this rock and a hard place, literally the, the, the Red Sea and the Egyptian army and not sure exactly what was gonna happen. And yet what happens? God opens up the waters and the people of Israel go through and the army that is chasing them follows and as they follow, Israel gets out the other side and God causes the waters to come again together and the army drowns. Do you remember that, he says? Do you remember all the kindness that I have done to you? Do you remember entering into the promised land and how I handed over to you the nations that were dwelling there, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites? That is the kind of God he's saying, I have been to you. When you have been in need, when kingdoms were oppressing you, I heard your cry and I came and rescued you through a deliverer. That is what I am like to you. I deliver my people from those who will do them harm. I am the God of Israel and I can be trusted to save my people from the hand of the Philistines. So God is reminding Israel of his faithfulness and his goodness to them. And then he goes on in verse 19, and he says, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. 
So this is an indictment of Israel's guilt for rejecting God. In verse 18, the I is emphatic. In verse 19, the you is emphatic. He's saying, this is what I've done for you in verse 18. But in verse 19, this is what you have done. So he's saying, when you look at how I've been good to Israel and you compare that with how you are treating me, there is a huge chasm. It isn't just that they wanted a king, but they wanted a king like all the nations. Dr. Woodhouse has this comment. There was a certain madness in Israel's heart. What they had done made no sense at all. To reject God was to reject their savior. So to say we want a king like the nations was to say we don't want you as our king. And that's exactly what God is identifying here. They're rejecting their deliverer. They're rejecting their savior. They're rejecting their God. So the request for a king was not simply a political request. It was a a desire to no longer be under the authority of God. They wanted to be under the authority of a king like the nations. Now if you think that God was just rolling over and giving into the wishes of the people, think again. God is always working his plan, even through the sinfulness of the people that claim to be his followers. In the book of Hosea, chapter 13, turn there if you would please. This is actually pretty important. Hosea chapter 13. Verses 9 through 11. We're actually not only gonna, not going to read. Yeah, we will. We'll read all 9 through 11. We're given commentary on this event so that we know what God actually is thinking when he is speaking these words through Samuel. It sheds light on God's character and attitude about what Israel is doing. So verse 9 of chapter 13 of Hosea. Here's what it says. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper, that would be God. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my what? Anger. And I took him away in my wrath. That's yet to come. But this sheds some light that what God is doing here, he's not just saying, well, I guess if you want a king, I'm going to give you a king. God is angry with his people. Yet, in his mercy, he is going to give them the king that they're asking for. Now, just there's a tension there. Anyone listening to what God was saying to Israel through the prophet Samuel would be expecting God now to announce his punishment on this disobedient nation. So we've had this reminder of God's goodness to Israel. We've had this indictment of Israel's guilt for rejecting God. But now we have this command for God's judgment to take place. So God now speaks to 
and tells the nation of Israel what they need to do. This is what it says. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Uh Uh-oh. This is going from bad to worse. Here comes the judgment. God is going to expose a tribe, a family, or an individual for their sinfulness. This is what he does. And it hadn't been too long before, at least not so long ago in the history of Israel, that they would not have remembered the, the, whole, the whole circumstance with Achan and his sin when Israel went in and took Jericho, and they were told, do not take any spoils. They're devoted for destruction And Achan goes in and he keeps three items, a beautiful cloak, a Babylonian garment, right? 200 shekels of silver, 50 shekels of gold. So God then in that story gathers the people together because they had gone out to to fight against another city, the city of Ai, that'd be A and I, pronounced I, and they had been defeated. So now he gathers the people, and this is a time of judgment. Judah is taken as a tribe, and then the clan of the Zerahites were taken, and then the family of Zabdi was taken, and finally Achan was identified as the culprit, and he confessed his sin. I'm going to pick it up here in the story of Joshua in chapter 7 and verse 24. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Who's the them? All his family. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Acre. This was a significant event in the history of Israel. And certainly when Samuel is saying, God now is telling you to present yourselves by your tribes in your thousands. Uh-oh, here it comes. So it's understandable that they're anticipating judgment. They're readying themselves for a dark day in Israel. A repeat of what happened in the Valley of Achor. But who would it be? Now again, remember, we, we know what the story is. We, we have that privilege, and so we, we may not get the feeling of, of what's going through the people at this point in time, but they are anticipating something horrible to happen. Now, the king is rejected. Now the king is revealed or chosen. First of all, he's identified, verse 20. And Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Now you can just imagine all the sighs of relief that were going on at that point in time, right? But not only the sighs of relief, but what else? The tears and the anxiety of one tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. 
In verse 21, he brought the tribe of Benjamin nearby its clans, and the clan of Matri- the Matrites was taken by Lot. Again, you can, you can hear the breathing in the crowd. You can hear the, the agony uh, uh, and, and the relief at the announcement of the, rat- the Matrites' clan. I, and I'm sure, like I said, there was some tears of joy. I'm sure that there was great panic at the same time. What shame to be so identified that your family would be singled out that one of your own would have offended God so much. Well, who was it that had sinned? Who would suffer because of another's sinful choices? And then the lot finally fell, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by lot. It's Saul. But the people must have been asking themselves the question, what has Saul done to bring upon himself this judgment? He is the one whom the people have asked for, and that is what the name means. Now, we we were introduced to Saul when he went out looking for his father's donkeys. We witnessed him being anointed by Samuel under God's direction to be Israel's leader, to be their deliverer against the Philistines. We were aware that Saul had been given orders to go to Gibeah and deliver the Philistines and to go up against them. Do whatever your hand, or it seems good for your hand to do, was, a, was an instruction to go to war. But he wouldn't do it. In fact, instead of that, he just went home and didn't even tell anyone what was going on. So he acted in disobedience. But when they sought him, he could not be found. I mean, there's, there's some humor there, right? I mean, this is, this is you know, this is this incredible powerful moment, Israel's king. Now, is it any wonder that he could not be found? We can come to some conclusions as to why Saul was not there that may be rather speculative. Some would say Saul was shy. He was humble. Um, I think when you look at the, the total picture of who Saul is and his character, we can come to the conclusion that Saul was a weak, disobedient, fearful man. And when the lot drew closer to Saul, his guilty conscience got the better of him, and he took off, and he found a place to hide. Now remember, we learned in the previous chapter, Saul went out looking for the lost donkeys, but What he found was a prophet that had been waiting for Saul to anoint him as prince of Israel. It was both a verbal um, and a ceremonial confirmation of God's call on Saul's life. And add to that, three signs were given to Saul to assure him and to give confirmation that this was God at work in his life, calling him to a specific task to be the leader and the deliverer of Israel the two men by Rachel's tomb, the three men near the Oak of Tabor, and the group of prophets in Gibeah, each of them fulfilled with specific and detailed prediction. I mean, it's not that, it's not that God just said, hey, you're gonna be king, and then boom, left. He reinforced it, and reinforced it, and reinforced it, and reinforced it, and said, now, now that I've called you, go do. But rather than press on in confidence to do what God told him to do, in other words, attack the Philistines at Gibeah, Saul had just returned home and kept quiet about the events of that day. 
this is very likely the disobedience that God was drawing Israel's attention to in one sense. Saul's been identified, but a secret is still hidden from the people. Like the wandering, stubborn donkeys Saul needed to be found. So now he is found. He's identified. He is found. Pick it up now, verse 22. So they inquire again of the Lord, is there a man to come, or still to come? In other words, where is this guy? Is there someone else? And the Lord said, behold, he has hid himself among the baggage. Now again, this is still humorous, isn't it? Why would this person be hiding in the baggage? The word baggage, maybe for us, portrays something a little different. We think of, you know, we're going on a journey and we have, you know, all this kind of stuff. It just means stuff. It just means um, physical objects. So you can imagine, as they came to Mizpah, they all came to Mizpah, they had their stuff, but then God said, now put yourselves in your tribes, right? So they, they left their stuff, they put all their belongings, kind of laid them out there. Well, that's where Saul went. He went and hid behind all of that junk that was there. So we can imagine that Saul is hiding behind some, some of this stuff because he doesn't want to hear what's going on. He doesn't want to be identified. He's sneaking off to find a place to get away from the attention of the people, but ultimately it seems with a guilty conscience to get away from the attention of God. Now how do we respond to judgment? Think about that. Isn't what we see here how we often respond when we think that we are going to be under God's judgment. I'm thinking about a person in the context of a church who is living a life of secret sin but is still attending church regularly and everything seems to be okay. And the pastor gets up and opens the Bible and he begins to unpack the text and this individual begins to worry because this text is dealing with that specific secret sin that he is involved with. Does the pastor know, he thinks? How could he know? How did he find out? What will people think if I'm exposed? Is he going to call me out? Is he going to confront me with this text? Is he going to do a prophet Nathan and say, Thou art the man? I know I'm guilty, he says, but I really don't want to hear this. I think I need to go use the restroom. So he gets up and he leaves. Under the pressure of conviction and judgment, how do we respond? Do we run off and hide? Do we try and find a place where we don't have to hear? Now, sadly, friends, this is one of the reasons why some people stop attending gospel-centered, Bible-believing churches. They're tired of, they'll put it this way, being judged, which being interpreted means they're tired of being confronted by God through his consistent word about their sin. So rather than be thankful, thankful for God's um, cleansing word that restores us in our walk with God, they avoid it at all costs and, and stand stubborn in their sinfulness when they, uh, what they think is God's judgment is actually God's kindness to them. Remember, 
behind every bit of God's judgment. Let me say it a little differently here. On the back of God's judgment is forgiveness and reconciliation through Christ. So when people think, oh, you know, the church is just all about rules and judgment and all that kind of stuff, there are rules that God gives us for living. There is a judgment that takes place, but the whole purpose of that is to bring us into a relationship with Christ that is restored. So rather than be in the context where they would be under that kind of guidance and care and love, They'd rather pour themselves into a job or into a cabin or to some kind of a hobby, anything to keep them from being under God's word. Now back to our text. When it comes down to it, it doesn't really matter where Saul was hiding. What does matter is that Saul was hiding. Notice verse 23, then they ran and took him from there. This is very similar to the Achan story. We're gonna find out they're going to look at his tent. They found all the, all the stuff, the Babylonian garment, the silver and the gold, and they brought him out. So, hey, we want to deal with this quickly. Now, listen, if you're being diligent to root out the person whom God has identified, maybe God will have favor on you, and you will not be part of the destruction, right? I mean, there's some thinking going on there, all right? I'm speculating there, but you can understand some of the attitude. They quickly, they ran and took him from there. And then when we read the following, this is what it says. And when, the, when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Now there's an irony here that in, here's the one who was taller than any of the people and yet he is hiding in the baggage. Now go back to chapter nine and verse two. And this is where, this is where what we were told at the beginning, the introduction of, of Saul some things that I think are, are really helpful. We understand why we're told here that Saul was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. A couple of weeks ago when we were on that passage, I told you, I said, I said notice that, just, just file it for now because that's gonna actually come into play. There's going to be some significant things that flow out of this. But at this point, we begin to understand the significance of Saul's towering frame. When people look for a king to be one like the nations, they look for someone who stands out in the crowd, literally. They look for a man who will make an impression on them. Saul's identified. He's found. And now Saul is revealed Now finally the great surprise is going to be revealed by God. The secret that God has been working behind the scenes is about to be made known to the people. They are awaiting a statement from God about judgment. But what they hear is something quite different. Do you think God has their attention? I think so. And here's what he says. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among the people. Saul is the chosen one. Remember how Samuel records the words of the Lord as he describes the king whom you have chosen for yourself? Clearly the one standing in their presence is the king they had chosen in their disobedience and rejection of God, but 
Here, Samuel says, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? So the question for us is this. Is Saul the one God chose, or is he the one the people chose? And what's the answer to the question? Yes. Because God is at work, exercising his mercy on a disobedient people to accomplish his purposes. He is sovereign in his mercy. The man standing before them was the obvious choice of what a king should be like. There is none like him among the people, all the people. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than all the people. He was handsome. If there was going to be a king like the nations around them, Saul had all the human characteristics necessary. So Saul was the people's choice. The people were finally getting what they had asked for. But Saul was also God's choice. Remember, they had rejected God as their king, and God was at work exercising judgment on his children, but now in a merciful way, even in their sinfulness and rejection of God, his love endures forever, forever for his chosen people. And then Saul ultimately is acclaimed. All the people shouted, Long live the king! Now, you just, you've got to wrap your hands around. You have rejected me as your king. Here's Saul. Long live the king. I mean, where's the, there's no repentance. There's no remorse. They're excited because God has chosen for them the king that they long for. So finally, the, the penny drops in the minds of the people of Israel, and they understand that Saul is being presented to them as their king. And although neither God nor Samuel had called Saul king, yet the people saw this tall, good-looking young man and began to shout, long live the king. Now there's a lesson about how a people who reject God value leadership qualities. Flows right out of here. What they want is a king like the nations. And Saul fits that perfectly. When Saul identifies, Samuel identifies Saul as God's choice for them, they are overjoyed. Look how handsome he is. It's nice to have a handsome king. Look how tall he is, very tall, so tall that he is certain to, to, to be fierce in leading our armies into battle. He's handsome, he's tall. And look at how unique and special he is. There's none like him among all the peoples. Yes, he certainly stands out. This is how people are moved to appreciate leadership. Tall, handsome, makes an impression. Friends, this is a lesson on how not to choose a leader. What does it matter if a person's tall? Forgive me if you fall into that category. What does it matter if the person is handsome? What does it matter if the person somehow is impressive? The kind of leader that God is looking for are men and women who are people of integrity, people who stand for something, people who have conviction and are not moved by the winds of culture. I can honestly say that if there's something that discourages me in our political system in the United States, is that the candidates constantly waffle on their positions. 
Give me a candidate that says clearly, this is what I'm about, and I will at least respect that candidate. If he stays by saying, this is what I'm about, I might disagree with him, but at least tell me and mean what you say, rather than, well, I guess the crowd wants me to go this way. Oh, I'm going to change my opinion here. When that candidate's position constantly changes with the political winds of popularity, you don't have a candidate with a backbone and character. You, have a candidate, uh, you don't have a candidate with conviction that they are willing to fight for. You have a candidate that is only concerned about self-preservation and leaving a false legacy. And I'm not talking about any particular party. I'm just saying, you know what, give us something. As, as, a, as an American citizen, give me a leader who's going to say, this is what I believe, and this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to stick to it. If you find that guy, if you find that gal, let me know. But you see, God wants the leaders in his church to be very clear about what they stand for. We stand for God. We stand for his truth. We stand for his honor. Flash forward a little bit, chapter 17. David goes out and confronts Goliath. Why? Because he's so strong. No, because he was defaming the name of the Lord. He was dishonoring the king or the, the, the God of Israel. I'm not going to put up with that. So little David goes out and fights him. Now, friends, in the church, we're looking at leadership in the church. We're going to use the... the, the, the you ought to be using uh, the right kind of measurements for that. We're not looking for a leader who is good looking or one that may make an impression wherever they go or has great skills in oratory or in logic or in debate. Or, or maybe they have the amazing ability to, 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 to please all people and bring them together. That's a, that's a dangerous statement right there. Or maybe they're just good business people and they understand finances and are gifted at organization and administration. Those are all, I would say, helpful tools, but that is not the means by which you determine someone is in leadership in the church. And we can be guilty of the very same thing that the people of Israel were guilty of, looking at the outward appearance, looking at the, 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 the physical stature, looking at all the, the bells and whistles that come with the world and not considering the character of the individual. Now, I like, I like to think of this when I compare television shows in the United States and television shows in the United Kingdom, and my British friend will attest to this. I do not mean to offend you, brother, because I, I am one of you. <laughs> All right? American TV, just take the show CSI Miami. Not that I watch it a lot, but I watch it enough to know this. Every person on that show, every guy is a hunk or he's hip. Every girl looks like she just came out of a glamour magazine, right? All right, now move over to United Kingdom. Almost every actor looks like his face was just smashed into a wall. <laughs> Twisted noses and ears, bad teeth, just plain ugly. But there's something refreshing about that, isn't there? We can't relate to all the plastic surgery that's taken place on American TV. 
we can relate to people who look normal. You see, the problem is we want this plastic person. But God says, this outside appearance is not what is important to me. It's the character of the individual that is important to me. You'll see this unfold in Saul's leadership as king. In fact, just think with me about 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17 is where Goliath comes out. The armies of Israel and the, uh, uh, the Philistines are, are on opposing hills, and there's a valley in between, and uh, Goliath comes out for 40 days and challenges the people, just give me a man, you people who are followers of Saul, give me a man. Now just think about this, this picture here. Israel is rejoicing that they have a king who is head and shoulders above the people. Wow, he's going to what? Lead us into battle. Okay, Saul, here's your opportunity. There are the Philistines. Lead us into battle, and then comes Goliath. <laughs> We're not talking head and shoulders. I mean, he's, he's already he's touching the moon, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's really, really big, nine feet tall or something like that. Who is the deliverer of Israel at this point in time? Saul. But Saul will not go out and fight Goliath. He doesn't have the character to trust God and to, to, to believe that God will deliver his people. So he doesn't do what God is calling him to do. My friends, that's really important because what happens in that story is, chapter 16, David, God's chosen king, is anointed to be king. And this little guy comes up to the battle and says, what's going on? Don't let this giant mock God. And he goes on, six them, right? That's the Rod Phillips version. Anyway, you get the point here, right? Here is this good-looking king who was head and shoulders above the people of Israel, and he's afraid to do what God has called him to do. Saul is revealed. He's revealed as king but for all the wrong reasons, the people are saying, long live the king. Now, let's think about what happens next. What we find next is the kingdom is established. All right, God's chosen the king, and the kingdom is established, but there's some things that need to take place. We're told in verse 25 here, and Samuel told all the people the rights and the duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid them up before the Lord. So these rights and duties are laid out of the kingdom. Th think about it this way. You, you, you probably remember this idea of the rights and the duties. Actually, a little earlier in in Samuel, it's translated this, the ways of the king. You say you want a king, God says to the people. Well, when that king comes, you will have to endure the ways of the king. And what he was saying there is that if you're going to have a king in the land, remember, he's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take all your produce. He's going to take your money. He's going to take, 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 take. That's what it's going to be like. But what we have here is something that's a little different. This is not the ways of the king, in the sense the, this is what the king is going to be doing, 
This is the ways of the kingdom. In other words, what he is laying out for them is the equivalent of a constitution. This is how the people of Israel are going to govern that king. So what we have here then is a comparison. We have in chapter 8, which is where, where, where we find this other expression, a king who is putting demands on the people. And in chapter 10 now, we have a king upon whom God is placing the demands for the kingdom. So in chapter 8, we had a warning of what the king would be like, demanding and oppressive. In chapter 10, we are told God's standards for the king and the kingdom, and they probably went something like Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through following. I'm only gonna read verses 18 and following. And when he, that's the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law law and these statutes and doing them that that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom he and his children in Israel and so this king was not to take 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 because the king of Israel would not be a king like the nations no he would rule and reign under the authority of the God of Israel. Keeping and doing all the words of the law, and he is able to do that when he reads God's word daily to fear the Lord. Now friends, there's, there's a historical impact to the Western culture that flows out of this text, out of Deuteronomy and even Samuel, 1 Samuel 10. We're gonna kind of travel our way over to the, the British Isles in particular and to Scotland and I want you to think about John Knox in the 15th century. Scottish preacher but was also an influential leader in that time. He pointed to this passage to so, show that the earthly monarchs are not laws unto themselves but are themselves subject to God's laws so that when Mary, Queen of Scots, committed adultery and supported the murder of her husband, Knox called for her arrest and execution. Samuel Rutherford of the 17th century based his best known book entitled Lex Rex, it's not a cartoon, okay, it's a book, Lex Rex on Deuteronomy 17. Lex Rex stands for the law of kingship. And he opposed Rex Lex, which stands for the king as law as a law unto himself. So he's emphasizing here that a king should always be under the authority of God. See, that's what's happening here. Israel wanted a king like the other nations. What are they thinking? Big and strong, handsome. He's going to rule. He's going to lead us into battle. And God says, I'll give you that king. But guess what? I'm giving you that king, but he's not going to be like all the other nations. In fact, he's still going to be under the authority of me. In fact, our founding fathers turned to these texts to influence 
the founding of this country that sought to rise up against a Rex Lex leadership rather than establish a nation under God. One nation under God. And the idea there is that the leadership and the people would be submissive to God. There's a lot of history that flows out of this passage. Now this is for Christians too, not just for monarchs and not just for nations. We are all saved by God's grace to God's law. A lot of people say, oh, we don't need God's law anymore. We're all under grace. We're all under grace by, as, as a means of salvation, but we are saved by grace to live our lives according to the word of God, right? And the word of God is what? The law of God. So God counsels us, he guides us, he directs us through his word. And there is freedom when we place ourselves in that context. So when we go to passages that teach about marriage and we understand the roles of a husband and the roles of the wife, those are not just traditional values that we just pulled out of the air. No, those are part of God's, I want to say, constitution. And in that constitution, there's a section on marriage that says, this is what a husband should be doing, this is what a wife should be doing. He talks about parenting, and he talks about relationship of, of, of bosses to, to those employees. He talks about the relationship of parents to their children. He talks about the relationship of citizens to their government. And these are all standards that flow out of God's truth. Why? Because God is supreme, and everything else needs to be under God. And so he gives counsel and direction that flows out of that relationship and directs the people and how they are to live. And do you see what's happened at Mizpah on this day? God has outmaneuvered the people of Israel. We got our king! Yes, you did. But your king is the one I chose, and that king is still going to be under my authority. And the people demanded that king, but they were not able to achieve independence from God. God chose and revealed Saul. Saul, his sovereignty was not set aside when he allowed Israel to have their king. No, his sovereignty was at work, driving his redemption plan in spite of their rejection of him. Now friends, this is, this is incredible stuff. This is a maneuvering that is unexpected in the storyline here of who is going to be king. This is good news for us. Listen, no matter how you and I try to grab control of the reins of our lives, deciding how we will think and deciding how we will live, God remains relentlessly sovereign and continues to be providential over all of our circumstances. Some of you have children. Some of you have loved ones who have been a part of the body of Christ, who sat under God's truth, and they are now wandering away into the, the land of sinfulness. Hear this. Either in faith or in unbelief, we will have God as our Lord, and he will exercise his sovereign prerogatives. 
if someone is walking away from God, yet they have a relationship with God, God is still sovereign in their lives. Even in the sinful path that they choose to walk, he is still there. And so as we think about them, as we pray for them, we can confidently say, God, you are still in control here. And that is good news, especially to parents, to family members who are burdened for those individuals. But now I want you to notice the response of the people. Now I want to, to, to highlight the point of what we have just heard from God. Samuel gets up, and this is what he says. And it says, and Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Wait a second, you just, you just showed us that Saul is king. But who's still calling the shots? Is it Saul? Saul didn't get up and say, okay, I'm king. Now you can all go home. We'll reconvene another time. No, Samuel gets up and says, Saul, you can go home. People, you can go home. Now more specifically, Saul went to his home at Gibeah. Some king, right? Oh, I'm just going to go home, okay. I'm king, I'm just going to go home. I mean, it's just kind of, to me it's just humorous, right? We know who is still in charge. And the king must listen to God's prophet who brings God's word. And friends, this is going to be a challenge for Saul. Samuel will say, go do this. And Saul will come up with an excuse. I didn't do this because of the people. We'll find that out in a couple of weeks. Then there are these men of valor. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. So God, in his mercy, has allowed a king to be put in place. He now is touching the hearts of some men now to go and, and be a part of, you might want to say, the forming of this army. So you have God providing a king, God providing a constitution for Israel, but now also raising an army by touching the hearts of some men, and they gladly follow him. There's another group, and Samuel brings out an expression that we've already heard, but some worthless fellows. Remember that? Who are the worthless fellows that we already looked at? Eli's sons. Eli's sons corrupted the worship in the temple. And now there are some worthless fellows. And this is what they said, how can this man save us? What kind of king is this going to be? And this, you know, there, this, this may be a group of people that said, we really wanted a king like the other nations. And we realized we don't have that. And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. It's not surprising that when God establishes his kingdom that the people will be divided. We've seen that in the sons of Eli, and we see it now with these men. I wanna bring this now to a close, and not only to just mention one more thing that is significant, I would encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 49. 
But I want to draw our attention now to how all this ultimately is pointing ahead and looking to that one who would be the king, the Messiah. If the people have been serious students of the word of God and about choosing God's king, they could have opened up their, didn't have Bibles, scrolls back then, and they would have read what we're gonna read here and recognize that Saul's dynasty would not last long. Why? Because Jacob had prophesied about Israel's king. Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. In other words, God's purpose and plan ultimately would not be that a king would come out of Benjamin, but a king would come out of Judah. And who comes out of Judah? David. The king's, let's put it this way, the truly the story of 1 Samuel is the story of the kingship of Israel passing from the tribe of Benjamin under Saul to the tribe of Judah where David is ultimately anointed king. Now, as we look at these various kings of Israel, there is a sense in which they are types or anti-types of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, we always must be very careful when we talk about types of Christ, because not everything about an individual is a type. But I want to pull three things here that just kind of foreshadow, just point ahead to this one who is the Messiah. First of all, I want to draw attention to the fact that when Jesus came, there was a messianic secret. Just like Saul's anointing is kept a secret until revealed by God. And by the way, when we get to David, his anointing was kept a secret for a while. Also, so is the messianic calling of Jesus to be king of Israel. It's kept a secret. Remember, as you read through the Gospels, when Jesus performed miracles, he told the recipients not to identify him, specifically Mark 7, 36 is one example. Jesus charged them to tell no one. Keep it a secret. So what's happening with these two kings ultimately would happen when Jesus would come. Secondly, Samuel said of Saul, there is none like him among the peoples. Of course, what he's referring to is Saul's physical stature, his countenance, his appearance. But in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus' appearance isn't what drew people, but his uniqueness was his inward character. He was holy, and he was without sin. Is Jesus unique? (laughs) He is the most unique. There is none like him among the peoples. Why? Because he is sinless. He is holy. The third and final thing is this. His coming as king ultimately would cause division among the peoples. Some would be touched 
by the good news of the gospel that Jesus preached, while others, like worthless men, would reject him as king, would stand in front of him as he's hanging on a cross, mocking him, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. But there would be a whole bunch of people who would be touched by God through the gospel that would be the beginning of this whole movement to recognize and to worship Jesus as the Messiah, the King of Israel. Friends, we serve a king that didn't just show up on the scene. We serve a king that is the result of God's providential, sovereign, redemptive plan that he is foreshadowing through the story in the book of Samuel. And he is the king that we call Jesus. He's the king that we worship this morning. He's the king who gave his body and shed his blood on the cross for us. And this morning, as we celebrate the Lord's table, step back and get a hold of the big picture of what God has been doing, what God is teaching us, that, that he brings the right king to be the right ruler and king of Israel. And he is ultimately our king, our Lord, our Savior. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the way that you reveal yourself in your word. Oh, Lord, we, we need your rebuke. Lord, we ask that we, we would have an understanding of you because of our time with you, because we've been sitting under your word and been in your word, that we would, we would recognize that when you come to us and you are confronting us and you're bringing uh, judgment, proper judgment against us, that we would endure it so that we can see what is wrong and that through seeing what is wrong that we can we can apply what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross to that sin and we can find forgiveness and we can find restoration. But help us not to run away from the exposure of our sin, but Lord, to come running thankful for what you're doing. Oh, it may be painful for a season, but Lord, it brings this full restoration and forgiveness and that is a place of wonder and peace that only you can bring. And Lord, we're, we're reminded as to the kind of people you want us to be, people who are people of character. We're all different shapes and sizes. We're all just normal individuals who've run into a wall, whose ears might be twisted or teeth might be jagged or whose, whose body fat might be large or struggling, whatever it might be, Lord. We struggle because we're so consumed with what the world thinks is important, and yet, Lord, what you're concerned about is whether or not we're willing to believe you, whether we're willing to trust you, whether we're willing to apply the gospel to our lives. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we are drifting, and allow us this morning to come back to this place and to worship you as our God and be willing to be obedient to what you've called us to be. We don't deserve it, but it's what you've called us to, and so, Lord, we're thankful for it.
and we need your strength to do it. Now, Lord, as we celebrate what you have done for us in giving of your son on that cross, may we be reminded of how the gospel came and penetrated our hearts. May it be afresh this morning, we ask in your precious name. Amen.